following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so we are uh, back in the series in Ephesians, quickly coming to the end of this series in Ephesians. Uh, We're in the final chapter of this book now. So we're going to be in chapter 6 this morning, and it's a passage on slavery, which is interesting. So you might not feel like that applies to you, uh, but it does. It applies to all of us. In fact, I had uh, last week, I was having a conversation with a guy after church who's a dad, and uh, he was saying after the message last week on children and parents, he said to his son, no, no, it's, it's next week's one on slave and masters that you need to be at. That's, that, that's the one for you, son. So I hope he's here. Uh, all right, now Debbie Anderson, I think, is going to come and read this passage for us this morning. Thanks, Debbie. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly if you are serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. All right, I want to start with a video clip this morning. Uh, This is just to set the scene for what we're talking about. It's from a movie called Armistad, which is set uh, back in uh, 19th century US, back in the era of slavery, when slavery was legal. And it's about a legal battle around these slaves that have come uh, from Cuba to the US on a slave ship, and then this legal battle that ensues around uh, their, their status in the US. And so in this scene, there are two abolitionists two people who are, who are arguing for the freedom of these slaves, and they are trying to convince this lawyer who's played by Matthew McConaughey, so his character, they're trying to convince him to advocate for these slaves. But as you'll see, Matthew McConaughey's character has a very different view of uh, what slaves are and, and what they're worth. So let's take a look at this. Watch the screen. Spain, they'll be taken to Cuba and executed. If the two lieutenants prevail, they'll most likely sell them to Spain, and they'll be executed. Monteith and Ruiz are successful in their campaign. I'm a little confused by something. What are they worth to you? We're discussing the case, not its expense. Oh, the case, of course. Well, the case is much simpler than you think, Mr. Tavern. I mean, it's like anything, isn't it? Land, livestock, heirlooms, what have you. Livestock. Yes, consider. The only way one may sell or purchase slaves is if they are born slaves, as on a plantation. I'm right, aren't I? Yes. So are they? Are they? Yes. Born slaves, as on a plantation. Well, not certain, but we very much doubt it. Well, let's say they are. And if they are, then they are possessions, and no more deserving of a criminal trial than a bookcase or a plow. And we can all go home, can't we? Now, on the other hand, let's say they aren't slaves. Well, if they aren't slaves, then they were illegally acquired, weren't they? Forget mutiny, forget piracy, forget murder and all the rest. Those are subsequent, irrelevant occurrences. Ignore everything but the preeminent issue at hand, the wrongful transfer of stolen goods. Either way, we win. Sir, this war must be waged on the battlefield of righteousness. What? 
people would be against everything I stand for to let this deteriorate into an exercise in the vagaries of legal minutiae. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Tappan, but I'm talking about the heart of the matter. Well, as am I. It is our destiny, as abolitionists and as Christians, to save these people. These are people, Mr. Baldwin, not livestock. Did Christ hire a lawyer to get him off on technicalities? He went to the cross, nobly. You know why? To make a statement. To make a statement, as must we. So that, uh, it's sort of a complex plot line through the movie, but that, that view that Matthew McConaughey is espousing there of slaves, I mean, basically what he says is slaves are livestock. You hear that? Slaves are livestock, really no different to any other kind of property. Uh, a hammer, a spade, a bookshelf, that's, that's basically how he, how he sees them. Uh, they, they're, just a, they're a tool to be used by people, they just happen to be a living tool. They're people, but they are just a commodity, they are property. Uh, at, at the uh, use of their owners. And that was a fairly common view. That's a fairly standard view uh, in, in the world at the time, in, in that era of slavery in the US in particular. That's how a lot of people saw slaves. And slave owners were not just non-Christians. A lot of Christians had slaves too. And when Christians came to justify having slaves and, and how they could think about slaves and people this way, uh, one of their favorite passages was this one in Ephesians. That's why I started that way, because the passage you're looking at this morning was used by slave owners in the U.S. and in other places to justify slavery and to argue that this is absolutely fine as a practice to own slaves, to have people as your, as your property, to own them, because look at what Paul says in Ephesians. If you're not sure about it, just look at what he says. He, he, he doesn't come out and say this is wrong. He doesn't say, masters, free your slaves. He just accepts the practice. And sure, he says, masters, treat your slaves well. He tells them to treat them fairly and kindly, and that's all fine. But the Bible never seems to come out and actually say slavery is wrong. And so people have argued on the basis of Scripture for centuries that this is an acceptable practice because the Bible doesn't take a stand against it. And it's been a little bit of a sore, a sore point for Christians who have wanted to argue against slavery but feel like, well, how do I, what do I do with these passages? that seem to suggest slavery is okay. And we want to be on the side of freedom and we want to be on the side of equality, but we're a bit embarrassed by the fact that there's these passages in our Bible where it doesn't really seem to take a strong stand against slavery at all. So I want to wrestle with this this morning, this issue, uh, because it's, it's, it's been awkward and difficult and Christians have found different ways around this through the centuries. But I want to look at this issue of slavery that Paul addresses here. Uh, put it back in its first century context so we understand what Paul was talking about and the issues he was speaking into. Look at what the Bible says about this issue and then start drawing some connections through to our modern day situation today and how we can apply this because I think it is more relevant than we might first think. So as you look at this passage, first of all, just a couple of comments to set the scene on what it was like to, to be a slave in the first century, what's, what slavery was like. When I, when I started out preparing this message, this has all kind of gone in a bit of a different direction than I thought it was going to, because where I thought this was going to go was that we would look at slaves and masters, and then we would just transfer that to the relationship between employees and employers today. And that's often what happens with this passage, is it's just this correlation between slaves and masters, so the slaves become employees today, and those instructions get carried over to employees, and the instructions to masters get carried over to masters. The problem is, when you actually start looking at what slavery was in the first century, 
it doesn't map very well onto modern day employment relationships at all. To be a slave in the first century, I mean, some of you might feel like slaves in your workplace. You might feel like you've got a slave owner for a boss. But employment relations in the, in the 21st century is a whole different thing to what slavery was like in the first century and in other centuries and other parts of the world. Uh, slaves lived a pretty rough existence. About a quarter of the whole population of the Roman Empire were slaves. That's a massive, massive part of the population. And the, the Roman Empire was literally built on the backs of slaves. Uh, where do you think all those amazing buildings came from? Uh, the, the whole roading infrastructure of the Roman Empire. This is all slaves. And they worked in arduous conditions. They had no rights. There was nothing like rights for slaves. There was nothing like we have employment rights today. Employees have all kinds of protections and privileges today under the law. Slaves have none of that. They are completely at the whim of their masters. And they have no uh, rights against abuse, against exploitation. And so that kind of treatment was, was absolutely rife. Masters would, would verbally abuse slaves. They would physically abuse their slaves. They would sexually abuse their slaves. This happened all the time. And masters could pretty much do it with impunity. They could get away with it because there were no repercussions, because this is just property. This is just, you know, this is just like a livestock or a bookshelf or a hammer or a spade or whatever. There are, there are no rights afforded to these things. They're just like livestock. So the treatment of slaves was often absolutely atrocious. And people had a very hard time getting out of slavery. They were paid so poorly, if at all, that they could barely ever purchase their freedom. And so people just continued to be born into slavery and generation after generation after generation it went on. To be a slave was a very, very rough existence in the first century. So it's against that cultural backdrop that you need to look at what Paul says to slaves and these instructions he gives, because you can only really see the brilliance of what he does when you appreciate how awful slavery was in that context. So in view of that, look at what he says. Look at the specific instructions he gives. Verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. See, the significant thing here is, in the, in, in the first instance, Paul addresses slaves, we don't notice that, but the very fact that he speaks to slaves is significant. In other types of writings like this, you don't address slaves because you don't address property. You just address the masters and tell them how to treat their slaves. You don't actually address the slaves. That would be treating them like human beings. But that's exactly what Paul does because he knew that in these churches he's writing to, in this letter that's going to get read out in these churches, there could be a slave and their master sitting there in church side by side. Maybe both of them have become Christians. So now they're both sitting in a house church listening to Paul's letter being read out. And so Paul addresses that slave as a fully human being. Not as property, not as chattels, not as livestock, but as a fully human person made in the image of God. And he treats them as a full member of the family of God. He treats them as a Christian, as an equal participant in the church. And look at what he does. He dignifies their work. He says, serve your masters as you would obey Christ. So he says, think of all that menial labor that you do, those horrible jobs, whatever they may be. Think of that as serving Christ. You're not just serving your master. You're not just doing their bidding. You are serving Christ. Paul gives incredible dignity to the work of slaves by saying, see what you do as an extension of your own Christian faith. 
It's an extension of your own walk with the Lord to do this, these acts of service, no matter how, how, how much drudgery, no matter how menial, no matter how much backbreaking labor it is. See this as your service to Christ. Do you see the way that Paul is lifting up the slave in this context? The way that he is giving dignity to those who are at the absolute bottom of the social ladder. We struggle to see it in our context because we're looking back. We feel like this is a bit repressive. But when you look at it against the context that Paul was writing in, this is a huge lifting up of those who had so little value and dignity in the eyes of other people. Then the even bigger surprise is what he says to masters. You come down to verse 9, he says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Well, what's the same way? Well, he's just told slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart. And now he says, by the way, masters, treat your slaves the same way. I don't, I'm not sure that he's necessarily saying, masters, you should obey your slaves. No, no, that would work in terms of the relationship. But he's certainly asking them to treat them with the same spirit, the same spirit of respect and love and, and sincerity of heart. That they're not to be unkind, they're not to be cruel, they're not to threaten their slaves. They are to treat them as equal members, brothers and sisters in Christ. So the way Paul frames it, you think again of a triangle. With Christ at the top as, as our ultimate master, and the bottom two points of the triangle are the slave and their master, their earthly master. And Paul is saying that in God's eyes you are equal. I know on a day-to-day -day basis there is this huge power imbalance in the relationship, but in God's eyes, you are equal. You are brothers, you are sisters in Christ. Absolute equality because with God, there is no favoritism. That's a radical shift away from the way the first century thought about anything like this. There's no sense of people being equal. There's no sense of slave and master being equal. That's, that was ridiculous. That was outrageous. And yet Paul comes along and says, you are both under the same master, Christ. Therefore, you're equal. And slaves and masters had to figure out what that was going to look like in their relationship when they went home. Because they, they could sit in church side by side and they're equal participants and they take the Lord's Supper together, but then they go home and it's still slave and master. And they had to wrestle hard with this and figure out, well, what does it mean? What, what, what does it mean for the master now to treat his slave as his brother in Christ? Still a slave, still going to do his master's bidding, but what does it mean to treat him with this kind of respect and sincerity of heart? And the slave had to think about, what does this mean to treat my master as, a, as, as an equal brother or sister in Christ, that they might equal? What does that mean for the way I relate to them and, and respond to them and, and take requests from them? This was hard stuff to work out, but this is the vision that Paul gives us of equality under Christ as our master. So when you place this in its historical context, this is a huge lifting up of slaves and a huge restoring of the equality between all people. It's tough for us to see that with Western eyes, but that's what's happening. Now, I want to just step aside from Ephesians for a moment and bring, bring in one other book of the Bible that's so relevant because it gives us a case study of how all this worked out. It's the book of Philemon. I don't know whether you've ever spent any time in Philemon, short little book towards the end of the Bible, but it's brilliant because it's a case study. This is Paul himself working out this in practice because he had to. Because at a certain point, there was a guy that came to see Paul named Onesimus. In fact, he might have been with Paul as Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians because he came and found Paul in Rome. And Onesimus was a runaway slave. At least we think he'd run away. His master was Philemon. And something had happened between Philemon and Onesimus. There'd been a breakdown in the relationship somehow. Maybe they'd had a big conflict. 
Uh, or maybe Onesimus had just run away for some reason. Whatever happened, Onesimus has, has run away and he's found Paul. And so now he's trying to get advice from Paul on what to do about the situation, this breakdown in the relationship between slave and master. And so Paul writes the letter to Philemon. And he may have written it from the same Roman prison cell that he wrote Ephesians. So Paul is having to think this through. This wasn't, he didn't have the luxury of just abstract theology. Paul had to make it work on the ground. Here's a slave. Here's his master. What am I going to do? And this is Philemon. It, it shows you exactly what Paul did. It's, it's interesting to read. Let me just read you one verse. I think the key verse in Philemon. Here's what Paul says. As he's writing to the slave master about the slave he's got. He's going to send Onesimus back with this letter, and he says this in verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Do you see what Paul's doing? When he writes to Philemon, he's saying, I want you to take Onesimus back. I want you to take him. Don't send him away. Don't get mad at him. I want you to take him back. But don't take him back as a slave Paul, Paul goes further here than he does in Ephesians. Can you hear this? He doesn't just say, treat your slaves well. He doesn't just say, I want you to take them back and treat them really nicely and don't threaten them anymore. No, he says, I want you to take them back, but not even as a slave. I want you to take them back as a brother. I want you, in other words, Philemon, I'm asking you to give Onesimus his freedom. Now, that is the last word that we have in Scripture on slavery. And it's the strongest point that we have where Paul points towards freedom for slaves. And he says slavery is not the natural condition of people at all. And if the gospel is going to have anything to say to this relationship, it should lead to freedom. Not just the better treatment of slaves, it should point ultimately towards freedom. That's where Philemon gets to. So I think the way to picture this is that picture it like a road, a big long road, and Paul is standing at one end of the road, right at the beginning of the road, and this is a road that leads ultimately towards freedom. It leads to equality. It leads to dignity for all people. Paul's standing at the very beginning of the road, and he takes one big step down that road. Now, Paul does what he could do in his day. I know we all wish that Paul had just come out and said, everybody free your slaves. right? I mean, we wish that Paul was the great abolitionist who had just said, there should be no such thing as slavery. This is totally abhorrent. And every, every slave should just go free right now. But Paul was working in an empire where slavery was absolutely entrenched as a part of the social fabric. You can't just overturn that. Paul was not in any position to suddenly overturn the institution of slavery. And even if he had said, masters, just go and free all your slaves. If every slave master had just let their slaves go like that, just set them out, they would have potentially put them in a more dangerous position. Now you've got all these vulnerable people. At least before they were with Christian, they were in Christian households if, if they're within the church community. But now they're just they're vulnerable to other people preying on them, abusing them, exploiting them, and so on. This could have created a much worse situation. So what Paul does is he takes one big giant step down that road as he was able to in his own day. He lifts up the value of the slave. He shows that these are people made in the image of God with equal worth and dignity. And he even, in Philemon, goes as far as pointing towards freedom for slaves in individual cases. But he just takes that first step. That's what you're seeing. Some people describe this in the Bible as a redemptive movement. There's a redemptive spirit in this text. And so the job then we have as Christians, and every subsequent generation of Christians have, is to keep walking down that same road 
that Paul began. He took the first step, but it wasn't the last step. We don't look at Ephesians 6 and read this as the final and last word on slavery. Otherwise, we would have to accept it. We would have to accept the institution of slavery. And we can't. But we see that Paul took one step down that road and he calls us to keep on following. And so in every subsequent generation, in every subsequent century of church history, of history, Christians have taken up that mantle and they've kept walking in the same direction that Paul has pointed. Away from slavery, away from exploitation, away from oppression, away from injustice, towards freedom, towards equality, towards justice, towards equal valuing and dignity of all people. It looks different in every age. It looks different in every culture. It has looked different in every century. But people have taken that mantle and kept walking in the direction that Paul points us. That is our calling. That is where the scriptures point us. So you get all the way to the 18th, 19th century, and you get to someone like William Wilberforce, the British member of parliament who campaigned so strongly for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And finally, three days before his death, that that slave act was passed, and finally slavery was abolished throughout the British Empire, largely because of his campaigning. He was a Christian man, and he was so challenged, particularly by the biblical principle of the image of God, that all people are created equal in the image of God. And he was so appalled by what he saw and heard about what was happening on the African slave ships that he made it his mission in life to do all he could. And he was a powerful man. He was a parliamentarian. He had influence. He was able to influence legislation. So he was in a totally different position to the Apostle Paul. He had a different context. He had a different amount of social power, political power. And so he could use that power and he did what he was able to do in his time. And he was massively instrumental in slavery then being abolished throughout the British Empire. That's many, many centuries after Paul. But I guarantee you, That if Paul had been able to see down through time and see what was going to happen with Wilberforce, he would have been cheering him on. Because I think Paul would have said, that's exactly what I was talking about. That's exactly what I was pointing towards. I I did what the Lord enabled me to do in my context with Onesimus and Philemon and the Ephesians and these passages. But this is exactly the direction that I was pointing And he would have been cheering people like Wilberforce on who took that mantle and then continued to work towards greater and greater equality and freedom and so forth. So you can draw, I think, a straight line from Paul to Wilberforce in the way that the Bible points. When you follow that redemptive movement, that's where it leads. So then we come to our day. The the path goes further and we come to our point in the road and then we ask ourselves, well, what does this mean for us? Here we are at this moment in time, this cultural moment, and we're looking at this road that Paul began walking down. Really, Jesus himself began this trajectory. Wilberforce and others have followed, and here we are in our day. What does it mean for us to keep walking down that same road? What does it mean for for us to live out the ethics of Ephesians 6 in our day when when it comes to slavery, when it comes to freedom? I think one of the things to consider is that slavery is very much alive and well in our world today. We can assume, because it's, it's outlawed in virtually every country in the world now, that it's not around anymore, because we live in an age where slavery is not legal. And yet, there are more slaves in the world today than at any other time in history. That's the irony of it. More slaves today in an age where it's not legal. So what, all that's happened is it's gone underground. It's estimated that there's up to 40 million slaves in the world today, 40 million people 
It's hard to calculate exactly, but about that number, who live in some kind of condition that could be categorized as slavery. 10 million of them are children of that total number. 25 million people in forced labor of some kind. 15 million people in forced marriages. 4.8 million people in forced sexual exploitation. So slavery today looks different than it did in the first century. This is not today about people being owned by another person. It's not literally being the property of someone, but it's people who are put in situations or get themselves into situations where they are controlled somehow by someone else. And they are cajoled into situations where they have no control over their circumstances and therefore they are exploited and oppressed and abused in some way. And it's not just out there somewhere. It's estimated that it's happening here even in New Zealand. There's up to several thousand people in labor conditions in New Zealand that could be categorized as slavery. And it's often through migrant labor that comes over and are put in positions where they didn't quite realize what was happening or decisions were made or whatever it is. And they get into circumstances where they are forced to work for terrible wages in terrible conditions. They're exploited, oppressed, and they can't do much about it or they're threatened with deportation. So it's happening right under our nose. It's a huge issue. And I would suggest that as Christians... We don't have the luxury of looking the other way on this issue because we've got passages in our Bible that speak to it. And even though in our lives, I mean, in my life, we we don't face this on a day-to-day basis. It's not right up there in your face. So it's so easy to ignore the realities of modern-day slavery. We just don't have to deal with it in our sorts of worlds and our sorts of existences. But we have a sacred text that speaks to this issue. And if we are going to be faithful to Scripture then I think we need to confront it. And we need to ask, what do these passages have to say to the conditions of people who find themselves in slavery today? And we have a responsibility from Scripture to continue doing what we can to walk in the same direction that Paul began walking centuries ago. So what do we do? A couple of things, a couple of practical things come to mind. One is to be careful with our purchasing decisions. And this is something that we can do because, like it or not, we live in a consumer society, so we are consumers. Now, that brings its own share of problems for the way that we live. But as consumers, you've got a certain amount of power in the way that you make decisions and companies that you choose to support and not support. And we need to be careful, I think. When you you have companies and you look back through the supply chain and you can see circumstances and factories or whatever it is in the supply chain of that company where people are working in genuinely oppressive environments and being exploited and being abused, do we not have to ask questions? Should it not occur to us at some stage, before you purchase an item of clothing, before you make purchasing decisions, as a Christian, should it make a difference to us if there's someone in a factory who's being physically abused in their workplace when we come to buy those sorts of clothes? I know you don't always know what's going on, but sometimes you do. There was a case recently with Lululemon, the Canadian sportswear company. It made the news. I saw an interview with a guy from Tear Fund on it. Now, these are allegations, and they come out in the media, and Lululemon has responded, and they're doing an investigation, and that's all good. But these are things I think we need to be aware of and track with and ask questions of, and it should influence whether or not we're prepared to support companies that allow these sorts of things to happen. There's a really helpful guide, if you want to look more into this, called the Ethical Fashion Guide. It's put out by uh, Baptist Aid in Australia each year. And they rank 400 clothing brands, different, uh, different brands, on how they do with ethical factors right through their supply chains. 
So as best they're able to, looking at working conditions and wages that are paid and the elimination of practices around any exploitation, abuse, and so on. And they rank these companies. And you can see, I mean, you look straight down that list, you'll see a lot of recognizable brands there. You'll see some that do very well. You'll see some that get an F for different reasons. And I would suggest that as Christians, we need to take this a little more seriously and let this filter into some of the decisions that we make day to day around purchasing and buying things. It's very easy just to grab stuff off the shelf and not give this two thoughts. But I think it's incumbent on us as those who are seeking to walk in the same way that Paul calls us to walk, away from slavery and towards freedom, that we try and do these things on behalf of other people who can't make decisions about their own environment, can't necessarily better their own conditions, but we can do what we can and use the power, the purchasing power that we have to try and move things a little bit in the opposite direction. So be aware. Be circumspect in your purchasing decisions. I think, too, though, this is not just about institutional slavery. It's not just about things that happen at a big macro level, big organizational level. I think it comes right down to a personal level. I think at at grassroots level, Paul is calling us to look at any situation where people are being treated cruelly, any situation where people are being treated unfairly, any situation where people are being exploited, and to move towards those people with love and with encouragement and with kindness. And these kind of situations are happening all the time around us. Anna and I have got some friends at the moment who are going through a terrible time. He's got some real problems in his workplace. He's, I don't know all the details, but it seems like he's being treated really unfairly in his workplace. And, and I would say taken advantage of by his employer, treated in, in, in some pretty horrible ways. And he doesn't have a lot of power in that place, but he is being treated in some ways that are pretty disgraceful. On top of that, he's got a terrible health condition, and this is all having an effect on his health, so he's spiraling down in that way, and then it's caused depression as well. He's now in major depression because of everything that's going on. They're in a really, really tough place. And we can't solve it all, and we can't fix it all, but we've just tried to look at them as a family and come alongside them and see if we can do what we can. I've tried to connect him, I have connected him with an employment lawyer to sit down and get some advice on what he could do in this situation. Uh, We've connected him with a counsellor to sit down and start unpacking what's going on and get some strategies to dealing with this at a personal level, in a personal way. And we've just tried to journey with them personally, just being there with them, hanging out, listening to them, praying for them, letting, checking in, letting them know that we're there and we're going to walk this journey with them as long as it takes. That's one little situation, one situation that we're aware of where there's people who are struggling and we've, we've just asked, well, what, how, how can we respond? And we're not great at this, but we're just doing, we just try to move towards them and journey with them and show a little bit of the love of Jesus. And I think in some small way, when you do something like that for someone else, you're walking that road that Paul talks about. You're walking that road from slavery to freedom. The person doesn't need to be in slavery in any literal sense for this to be relevant. It may just be someone around you who's having a really difficult time and is being mistreated by someone else, being pushed down by someone else. And you can be someone to come along, offer a hand of freedom, to lift them up, just as Paul lifts up the slave in the first century. You can lift someone up, give them a little more hope, give them a little more dignity, help them to see a little bit more light, give them a little bit of encouragement. And you may be the one in that situation. You may be the person who's being pushed down. You may feel like you're in that kind of environment right now where something's happening and you're being mistreated and you're being treated unfairly and unkindly and and others are being cruel to you and you're being taken advantage of. And, And if that's you, all I would say is reach out for the help that is there. Don't just battle on as if you just have to slog this out on your own. You're not alone. And this is part of us being a church family. That we're called to outwork this together. We're called to be a redemptive community 
Yeah? Not just redemptive people. So if you are struggling and you are being pushed down by someone else, reach out for help and support from someone else in this community that you know, that you love, that you trust. If you don't know where to go, if you don't know who to talk to, contact one of our pastors and we will do what we can to come alongside you or help someone else to come alongside you and walk that journey with you. We can't fix the whole problem. We can't solve every issue, but we can journey with each other and help one another take little steps along this road from slavery to freedom. So please don't just slog it out on your own, but draw someone else in on that journey. I love the words of the old Christmas carol, O Holy Night. I know it's a bit early for Christmas. But the second verse of that song, I think just speaks so powerfully to what Paul writes about, this journey that we're talking about from slavery to freedom. It says, Truly he taught us to love one another, His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is a brother. And in his name, it's his name, all oppression shall cease. And that, those words, beautiful words, they point us towards the day when this road finally gets to its destination. And there is a day of freedom. And there is a day of rejoicing. And there is a day of no more oppression, no more exploitation, no more injustice, but freedom and equality for all and new creation for those who belong to Jesus. That's the end of the road. And we've looked at Paul right back there at the beginning of the road. And here we are in the middle, somewhere in between those two. And the question we need to ask is, what does it mean for us to keep taking those steps forward? Keep taking those steps towards freedom, towards lifting other people up around us, loving those who maybe are lacking a little bit of love, empowering those who are lacking power, strengthening those who are feeling weak, giving dignity to those who are feeling undignified, lifting up those who are just downtrodden and downcast and oppressed by other people, doing all we can to raise the spirits, raise the hopes, raise the lives of other people. And we do it not just for them, We do it not just for people, but we do it because all of us are under one common master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the master over all. We do all of this out of submission and fear and respect for him. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, I want to pray now that you would just come and connect your word to our hearts. Come and make it real. Come and bring it alive. I pray, Lord, that this wouldn't remain just a thought or an idea, but you would place in front of us right now the people, the people in our worlds, the people in our lives, the people in our neighborhoods or schools or whatever, whom you would have us go and reach and come alongside and draw near to, to lift them up, to encourage them. Lord, I pray you'd give us courage to do that when it feels awkward and when it feels difficult and when it feels maybe a little bit embarrassing. Lord, I pray you'd give us the strength of your spirit to step into those situations and offer the same love that you, Lord Jesus, have shown to us. And I pray for any here this morning, Lord, who are feeling downtrodden. Lord, I pray for any here who are feeling like they're in slavery in some form, maybe to someone, maybe to something, maybe just enslaved to themselves. And I pray, Father, that the freedom of your Holy Spirit would come and set them free, bring healing Bring renewing, bring freedom, bring life, bring hope 
Father, I pray, where there's just hopelessness and despair, people feel like it can never be anything other than it is, I pray that you would bring the hope of your spirit into those lives, into those hearts, into those situations, that they could look up, they could see you, they could see that day when all oppression will cease, and they could keep their eyes on you and move forward. Lord, give us your strength. Pour out your spirit upon us. Help us to be people of freedom and not slavery. Help us to be redemptive people. Help us to be a redemptive community together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.